Welcome to Cyber Synapse, the podcast that's creating connections through cyberspace with candid conversations about cyber and tech-related issues with your host, Kath Nibbs. Do you know your GDPR from your ISO? Is your business cyber secure? If not, give agency a call on 03455 760 999. You can visit their website at www.theagency.com. An agency is with an I, not a Y. Welcome to this week's episode. Now, I don't know if you would consider yourself lucky, privileged, or you never even thought about the very fact that you can listen to a podcast. You have the ability to um, surf the internet download podcasts, videos, etc, etc. And today's topic is about digital authoritarianism. Uh, Now, while I'm talking to Justin Sherman, who's uh, come back for yet another provocative conversation, um, I get onto the subject of authoritarian parenting. And I also get to slide in beautifully a little bit about um, Bandersnatch. So if you haven't seen Charlie Brooker's Bandersnatch, who is way ahead of the thinking of most of the general public, um, he he actually shows in that film something called Power and Control. And it's a really, really interesting uh, perspective. So while you just think for a moment, um, we do get into talking about countries that are restricting, reducing, limiting uh, access to the Internet and why they do that. And this year, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, reducing access to pornography. So on the 1st of April, um, but this podcast should be out just after that. So it will have happened a couple of days ago or a week Um, that in the United Kingdom, we are now trying to limit the access that young people have to pornography by creating age identification. Uh, It's likely I'm going to have a podcast on that very topic, but it's going to have more of a GDPR slant. It's going to have more of a twisted cyber criminal conversation uh, because that's kind of where my thinking goes rather than um, what it's intended to do, which is to restrict access uh, to uh, over 18 material. Uh, So this is just to give you a little bit of a question before you start listening to this week's episode. What do you think you're lacking access to? What do you think you actually have access to? And who is it that's in the power and program and control position in terms of your um, your experience online? Um, have you ever even considered it? Um, we know that schools restrict pra- uh, access and we know that certain practices do it uh, for certain reasons. But I'm wondering if you were to Google something and to look for a piece of information in the news, what do you think the algorithms would give you and what do you think you're actually restricted from finding? A little bit of critical thinking for you today before you go diving in and listening to Justin and I. Um, there isn't any visual for Justin because we found that um, the internet connection holds out much better um, in terms of uh, Zoom because it just does when I'm trying to do evening and, and uh, popular times on the internet uh, conversations. Um So enjoy this episode. Again, um, they're going to be coming out as and when I record them. Uh, That's going around my timetable and my schedule at the moment because uh, it's turning out, 2019 is turning out to be rather, rather busy already. Um, So enjoy this episode and I shall see you next time. Welcome to Cyber Synapse. Again, I'm joined by Justin Sherman. And the reason I've brought Justin Sherman back is uh, among the fact that we've had lots of conversations about uh, those really scary things about the internet AI we've talked about kind of cyber security risks we've talked about face recognition uh, and we're going to kind of do some of that again today um, but the reason I brought Justin back on again is um, Justin's also a cyber security policy fellow uh, at New America a Washington DC think tank He's also the co-founder of Ethical Tech, a nonpartisan initiative at Duke University focused on the intersection of ethics and technology. Now, that really interests me in terms of, um, I'm not sure if I introduced you like that before, Justin, but the ethics and technology is kind of what we've covered in the previous couple of episodes that we've done. So ethical tech, how would you you describe that for people who don't know? Yeah, and and first, you know, thanks again for having me back on. I'm excited to to be talking. 
Yeah, ethical tech, um, you know, broadly is basically looking at technologies like artificial intelligence and the internet uh, and saying that there hasn't been much ethical consideration in their design. And there are still lots of ethical considerations in their use that we have to think about, whether that's privacy or whether that's an AI making unfair decisions. And so essentially what the organization is trying to do is broaden education and policy thinking around these issues. Yeah. Yeah, because I think we did we did talk quite a bit about that in the uh, cybersecurity risk, didn't we? In terms of you know how how the bias of human thinking can then end up in in the world of uh, machine learning and AI. Um, I quite like yes. the same then when you said unfair thinking. <laughs> yes, we definitely computers about that. are not <laughs> computers are not unfair. So today's episode is going to be digital authoritarianism. Now, again. I think I think we've just discussed about before we dive in on those two words and kind of go this is what this is um we're actually talking about um kind of the freedom that the internet provides us or not and there is something called freedom of the net is there not Yes uh there's a group called Freedom House which is sort of an international monitoring organization focused on the internet and what they put out is what you just said, Freedom on the Net. It's an annual report looking at the internet in different countries and evaluating things like the cost to access the internet, how accessible is it, all the way to things like censorship. How many sites is the government blocking citizens to access? Mm -hmm. Yep. So this is not what I moan about on, on uh, my podcast regularly about my internet provider not giving me the best bandwidth that I need. <laughs> um, and and you know and how how I'm quite cross about that on on a number of occasions, and yeah, and it does it does result sometimes in me not being able to get a, a podcast recorded in one one fell swoop. However, that's that's not really what we're getting at. So I'm just thinking for kind of the listeners who who do pay attention to this, most of you will be in a country where actually you get to find out pretty much what you want from the internet and mm -hmm. uh, i don't know whether people realize or recognize there is a lot of freedom in what you search and how you search and the kind of answers that you get back so this is this is kind of what we're talking about isn't it yes exactly yeah there's there's sort of been uh there's a tendency to think of the internet as a very free place um in certain countries particularly like you said free countries democracies that do have pretty open access to the internet Mm -hmm. um, but this relates to a larger human challenge with emerging technologies, and that's that we're pretty good at evaluating the positive effects of a technology, what it's going to do good for us. Um, and with the internet, that's been things like democratizing access to information. Um, you see things like the Arab Spring, where people can easily assemble via social media and organize protests and have checks on government. Um, but what we're not as good at with these emerging technologies is evaluating their negative effects. And with the internet, very early on, as you just sort of hinted at, democracies kind of viewed it as this, this inherently open, inherently free, inherently democratic thing that was going to enhance freedom around the world, boost the economy. And it certainly has done that in some respects. But what we're seeing over the last decade is that in many countries, the internet is heavily controlled, it's heavily censored, yeah, yeah. and in fact is a great way to spy on and socially control your citizens. So it's actually quite anti-democratic in how it's being used. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, yeah. So I think this is where we can kind of start going down the road of the, the authoritarianism. Um, yes. So for me, I think in terms of the people that do listen to this, I would re reckon that most of them are parents and I'm just going to say that authoritarianism is a particular style of parenting. So whilst this may sound um, like a good idea to some people, um, you might want to take a check on your parenting style and see if it seems to match what we're going to discuss here. I just thought I'd get that in there. <laughs> so, okay, where do we start? Right, so... This is, this is kind of based on a couple of articles, not just articles, because I was talking to you about... Um, some of the things that I've seen regarding, and I and I have shared them on my Facebook page. Um, I think I might have done it on um, Twitter as well. Um, that there are numerous technologies that are used um, kind of for a, a double purpose, aren't they? So, for example, I think I was chatting to you, Justin, about the, the Chinese police that were using uh, body cameras to uh, mm -hmm. help them recognise uh, people who hadn't paid parking fines. 
Yes. Whilst also, what's happening to that? Uh, the, the big question comes up about what's happening to that data. Who processes it? Where does it go? What you know? Where's it connected to? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So, what, what about if we start with how technology can be used um, to basically data mine? That I think that would be a good way to explain it. Yeah, and it's exactly what you just said. This 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 term digital authoritarianism that's kind of emerged is much bigger than the internet like you just said it also includes things like artificial intelligence where instead of using ai to do something like uh say predict a disease right your likelihood of skin cancer or something of that sort um there are governments using it to predict citizen behavior and to monitor citizens so that they can crack down on their activities um you know, censor their activities, things of that nature. So, um, yeah, the, there's, they're definitely, you know, and, and that's part of why this is so interesting is that mm-hmm. for, for decades, whether it's science fiction writers writing on AI or people who were emerging technologists writing on AI, it was relatively easy to imagine the positive effects of the technology and that there's all this data out there and if we monitor people's behavior we can save lives and we can boost productivity Um, but like you said we're sort of seeing more and more nowadays where people's data is being used against them and if you live in a country or a culture or an environment where yourself your identity how you identify or things you're doing are not considered okay the government does not consider them okay it's quite easy for them to collect all of that information or through it to identify the particular people who are not compliant and then sort of build a, a social control or surveillance system around that. I, do, you know, do you know what popped in my head uh, as you were just saying that? I was like, oh, my God, this ought to be an episode on uh, Black Mirror. So, Charlie Brooker, <laughs> if you're listening, um, maybe, maybe this would be a way of um, making, yeah, making a TV program where we could actually see exactly what would happen once the government and i'm sure it's within his remit to have done this anyway and um i don't know if you've played bandersnatch um i no i have not but i've (laughs) so good um again this is because i'm slightly older than you um so it took me right the way back to the 1980s of those adventure books that i used to read Um, (laughs) but it was really really interesting how how the actual program that you're playing or you think you're playing is actually engineered yeah that there are certain things that you are engineered to do whether you want to or not right so even even in the gameplay of you know you think you've got a choice left or right forwards or backwards <clears throat> i'm not going to give away what they are um you know the <laughs> first one's about cereal you make a choice about which cereal he's going to eat and it's that kind of manipulation where you believe you've got a choice Right. you haven't so i have a particular meme that i stuck on instagram it was on my facebook page and it's um it, it's it goes back to something that's said in bandersnatch actually it's about program and control so whilst i'm saying it'd make a good um a black mirror episode i've probably just shot myself in the foot there because it's already been made but you know <laughs> you know what i'm getting at yeah 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 there's you know as you said there are these algorithms everywhere right we talked about this on a previous podcast yeah um twitter facebook netflix in varying ways the the tech platforms and systems we use day to day are using these decision tools these machine learning algorithms to predict what we want to see and they show it to us because Mm -hmm. the fact is the more time we look at the platform the more ads we see and the more money facebook or twitter or google or the company makes um You know, and that's, and, and again, another thing we discussed on the previous podcast with data privacy laws and things of that nature, that's sort of a public concern now in, in the United States and Europe and many other democratic countries. Um, but what we're seeing increasingly, which is the digital authoritarianism and the, the Chinese police surveillance you mentioned, is that we're more predictable than we think. And so the applications can be far more insidious than just curating a news feed that we think is organic. In fact, the applications can be predicting where you're going to move and intercepting you. They can be monitoring your credit score and your social behavior and then using that to generate risk scores on your own citizens and their likelihood, say, of speaking out against the government or defaulting on a loan. Yeah. Yeah, I think in, in the, the articles that you put up on uh, LinkedIn, uh, that there was this thing about um, 
how how they will filter a lot of the information that would prevent like like as you mentioned right at the beginning uh they, they prevent ways of people having a protest you know whether it be a silent mm-hmm. protest a, a peaceful protest or a slightly more um rowdy one actually there's something about the governments are preventing that kind of um system from happening i think i think that was through um manipulation of um taking down sites wasn't it so yeah i i think i'm going to do a little bit of a parallel here because what we have in uh, this country at the minute is something called the internet watch foundation and whilst they're there to remove images of uh, child abuse and you know child sexual abuse should i say um they are able to take down websites now they do it under the basis of this is for the prevention of the distribution of child uh, images and this is the same principle but in reverse for you know kind of information that um the chinese um what do i want to say here basically people who live in china russia and some of the other um larger government areas i can't remember exactly which ones they all are um but it's it's the same as I've learned. Twitter isn't in certain places as well, so I, I believe that yeah. China does not allow Twitter to actually exist. Yeah, and this goes back to the negative effects of the technology thing. Most democracy, you know, France, Germany, UK, US, um, India, Israel, a lot of countries when the internet arrived to them left it relatively open. The government didn't really filter much. Um, mm-hmm. There wasn't much tight control of the net. It sort of let it happen and economies grew. And like you said, there's greater access to information as a result. Um, not that there haven't been bad effects, right? Child porn, fake news, cybersecurity threats. Yeah. Um, but generally, they didn't touch anything. That's That wasn't really the case uh, in some other countries. Shortly after the internet arrived in China, in Russia, in Iran, and other countries, um, that lean authoritarian, the government realized pretty quickly that while this was a good source of economic growth, like you just said, it also allows citizens access to things that the state doesn't want them to see. And that might be foreign news sites, that might be blogs within the country that challenge the state's prevailing view of the world. And so what happened is, and this is particularly the case in China, is the government built out what we call the Great Firewall. And they built this massive internet sensor system and they block everything from foreign news sites to, um, I was just reading, they block a lot of sex education videos lately. So that it's a wide range of things. Um, but it's exactly what you just said. And, you know, when there's filtering out child porn or filtering out um, those kinds of images from getting children, is very different than blocking access to information that the government just doesn't want people to see. Um, But that's sort of what's been going on in China and Russia and Iran and the UAE and Turkey now, um, is when the government has, there's a protest going on or the government knows that there's something out there that it doesn't want people to see, they'll just block Twitter, they'll block Facebook, they'll block access to blogs. Um, And that's sort of one of the ways that we've seen this digital authoritarianism grow is that, yeah. Uh, these countries are locking down the internet. Yeah, and I, I'm just wondering about the rebellious nature of human beings, because, um, again, this is where I'm going to take it back to the parenting. If you become uh, like an authoritarian parent, what you tend to find is that your children rebel. Um, so this is kind of where Tor browsers came from, wasn't it, in terms of, you know, you didn't have access to um, the internet, so Tor browsers were then used as a way to access without being found. So I think I've just found I've just found it in the article that um, was it d- 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 in 2017 um, Russia banned VPNs, which meant that people couldn't do. I'm just thinking. Sorry, I shall go back. Virtual private networks. That is a very similar thing. Um, I'm just thinking to explain it to the listeners, just in that because um, I do confuse people and they don't always know what I'm talking about. But a VPN and a Tor browser are ways of accessing the internet in a uh, like like a stealth mode yeah i think that would be essentially yeah, yeah yeah and like you said tor you know people um people who have heard of tor before which stands for the onion router typically think of the dark web and crime that occurs on it which is true if you're browsing anonymously you can get to markets that sell drugs and guns and all kinds of other things mm-hmm. um but like you said, the original intention of Tor was to allow journalists and dissidents 
um, and even perhaps government informants who live in countries that are heavily surveilled and suppressed online, that they can securely communicate with people outside of that. Um, and so you're right, people definitely are rebellious. And in China and in Russia and these countries, many people do use VPNs to try and get around the censorship so they can access mm -hmm. Facebook, so they can read Western news sources. Um, and to your point, like you cited for my article, in 2017, Russia did in fact take much stronger action to ban VPNs because the government knows people are trying to get around stuff. Um, kind of another anecdote related to rebelliousness, Russia recently had a draft law in its state legislature to build a domestic internet, um, essentially aiming to, yeah, create a network that's completely cut off from the globe and that kind of operates independently. Um, the, the main reasoning behind this, uh, at least based on uh, my analysis and my colleague's analysis, is that um, China's always been a little more sophisticated with their censorship system. Um, mm. Russia is not as sophisticated, and so straight up disconnecting a lot of the net is sort of an easier way for them to manage that. Um, and this was, a, this was about a week or two ago, but just yesterday, uh, many, many Russian citizens took to the street to protest this bill. Um, you know, because while they can get around some censorship things now by using VPNs, if you start literally unplugging the cables that connect different countries, you're not going to be able to as easily access yeah. other news sites. So, Yeah, I think um, there's, there's two things that struck me from that. Well, that was definitely, um, and I'm going to use the phrase, the iron boot that just blinking came down there, wasn't it? That was like the parent that just said, right, Russia, you're grounded, and took everything off them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, that's it. Um, but for me, I was just thinking, oh, my word, I wonder if people actually recognise and realise... Um, so I've been I've been very privileged and lucky enough to stand in one of the rooms in this country where the local traffic coming from other countries come into the servers. So I've actually stood above those servers on a, a beautiful big glass ceiling or floor, uh, depending <laughs> on which way around you were looking um, at, at the servers where all of the information comes into the north of England. Now, if there was an issue with any one of those servers or any one of the wires coming in, that would effectively happen to us through right. you know, through an accident. But actually, this is what Russia's done, haven't they? They've they've walked in on the child playing a game. I don't know. I'm just thinking of the metaphors of parents that come into my therapy room here. The pair, the child's <laughs> playing the computer game. The parent said, "I want you to get off the computer." The child said no, and the parent's gone across and cut the plug off it. That's that's essentially what's happening. Yeah, and sometimes quite literally that's what happens. Um, increasingly, many mm. African nations have been have been blocking social media um, and other internet services. You can kind of casually call it a, a blackout, an internet blackout. But in yeah. some of these cases, they literally are cutting or unplugging a giant underwater cable that goes to another country. And there have also been accidents where a ship or a storm uh, passes over one of these cables and for a brief period of time a country doesn't have internet um, and again you know thinking about negative effects of technology and things we don't really predict it's easy to think of the internet as this really virtual weird thing up in the air that we can't really put our hands on but it's easy to forget like you just said that there are servers there are cables there are physical devices that actually are what allow us to connect, that send the signals. And so if those stop working, yeah. so does the internet. Uh, yes, it's very much um, trying, to, trying to describe to people what the internet is and, you know, the idea of it is this thing that connects us globally, but actually that still has to be done by wires. Well, unless, unless uh, Elon Musk gets his way with his um, uh, satellites and so on, and that, that will take us off topic. So I shall just... I'll just <laughs> I'll just come back to, okay, so the implications of this are, I mean, let's just go back to the, the small example that you gave. So this happens here in this country, actually, when um, schools put the filters on to protect children from, you know, accessing pornography sites, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that regularly gets taken away as a result of that are the filters that block access to a lot of sexual health websites and so on. Okay. So that then prevents young people from accessing 
the information that may help them make a good decision or a decision that's helpful. So I'm, I'm going to try not to do the good, bad thing, but a decision that would be helpful and a mm. decision that would be information based. So if they don't get access to kind of the, the correct sexual health care or health care, the likelihood is that they will make ill-informed choices, which may have a detrimental effect on them for the rest of their life. So that, that's just a very simple example, isn't it? So yeah. what, what do you think you're finding or having discussions with your colleagues around about kind of what, what the negatives are? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of negatives, right? I mean, w- one is that generally speaking, I think people who live in a democracy would prefer to live in a democracy rather than a dictatorship. Hmm. Um, the sort of the, the the immediate on its face concern is that when technologies like the internet or AI are used in an authoritarian way against citizens, it strengthens authoritarian governments because if you're able to closely spy on and socially control the behavior of your citizens, that's a great way to prevent them doing undesirable things. Um, In that sense, there are a lot of harms that result from this kind of behavior. Um, You know, whether that's not getting free access to information or whether that's human rights abuses. Um, And, you know, if we want to kind of start transitioning a little broadly away from just the internet and thinking about other technologies um, back to AI, right? There's, there's, uh, a massive ongoing push in China to reportedly to put um, many Uyghur Muslims, which are a persecuted minority, into these, what they're calling these re-education camps. Um, and, you know, and some have compared them to concentration camps over there. I was just going to say, how delightfully named. Yeah, so, but what what's what's part of the process of doing this is that they have surveillance drones flying overhead, of these regions, they are taking people's DNA and blood samples. They apparently have AI facial recognition set up to sort of monitor this population as they move throughout the town because they can't put everybody in these camps right now. And so there's sort of this effort to say, who should we put in now and who should we wait to put in? Um, but there's this massive surveillance state that's being built out there. It's, I hate to, I hate to, you know, be cliche. It's very 1984. It's, the the government is very very closely monitoring people. Yeah, and yeah, yeah I was just going to say <laughs> it's very Orwellian, and it's not good. They're using this stuff, and it's not just this theoretical concept of privacy, where you know maybe a company is making money off of you, but they're very in a very tangible, physical way, locking people in these places, ripping them away from their families, and there's these large scale human rights abuses. So. Um, you know, we can talk, we can get into this more, but AI is another dimension of this, is that just because AI is used for positive things and just because it might help humanity in some ways does not mean that governments who are authoritarian cannot use it to enhance or enable their governing objectives. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you were talking, I was going to say Orwellian, um, but also Minority Report. Oh, very minority report. It yep. kind of feels like the, the next thing is, is we're going to be, uh, you know, picking people up and saying, you had a thought, you know, pretty much like the film, you know, you had a thought that yeah. resulted in. So here we are, we're going to, I'm, I'm just taken aback actually by the, uh, the name of the, the name of the camps. It just, wow. Human beings like to dress things up. Um, yeah. Palatable, don't they? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so let's stay with the AI bit then, because yeah. you know if we're gonna if we're gonna totally um, sensationalise and scare people to death with our conversations, why not go, <laughs> why not go for the cyborg kind of? Um, in fact, this popped up on uh, the po- podcast I was doing with Rachel the other week. She said to me, "Do you think there's an impact happening?" And I said, "At the moment, because of the the Kurzweilian." kind of approach to the singularity in AI and, and mm-hmm. machine learning. We do have a massive fear, but I also think that that fear isn't all um, over-sensationalized or cat- catastrophized. I think there is a real risk element that we do need to pay attention to because, you know, as much as things are progressing and, and I'm very much for kind of the Peter Diamandis uh, approach to actually, this is the technology that's going to help reduce poverty. It's going to help, uh, you know, protect the biosphere. It's going to help us move forward as a a species. 
there's also this thing about, but if we're not careful, we could be our own undoing. Yeah, and, and you know, I don't, uh, personally, I'm a little more conservative with the, the Terminator type uh, super intelligent machine that's going to rule us all kind of thing. I think that's, mm -hmm. that's a bit exaggerated and um, if, if even possible, very far out. But to your point, there is a tendency to think just about the good applications as we do with any technology. It's no one's fault in particular, but um, it mm -hmm. just sort of our poor risk assessment forecasting as humans. But, um, but yeah, no, there, there are a lot of applications now we're seeing increasingly where AI is doing a lot of harm. Um, and, that, and that's in all kinds of countries, right? I mean, like we talked about last time, um, there are AI applications that make very, very biased and unfair decisions towards certain groups of people. Um, mm -hmm. And as a result, you have things like people are not getting fair treatment uh, in legal systems if a court is using a, a risk assessment algorithm on them. Um, people, you know, getting uh, a facial recognition algorithm saying they're a criminal because their skin is a certain color. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things um, in democracies and in all countries, too, where this is an issue. Um, yeah. But, you know, but I think because there has been more attention on that in a democratic arena, and then now increasingly realizing how countries like China and Russia are using AI, particularly China, to really tightly control people, suppress human rights. Um, I think it's getting much, in a, in a, not that this in any way makes up for the harm that's occurring, but in that sense, it, there is some good that people seem to be waking up a little bit more to uh, how these technologies can be used for, for good and for bad and have good or bad effects. Yeah, and, and it's, it's for example, the likelihood of this podcast getting over there and being heard by a, a number of people is going to be rather slim. Very low. This is also about perhaps us having conversations as well that, that mean other, other people who aren't in China are able to start saying, hey, hang on a minute, we can't, we can't do this to people. You know, this is, this is not acceptable. Exactly. And this is, kind of, this is the kind of stuff we've talked about on the previous episodes is building yeah. ethics and ethical norms around these technologies is as we develop, as the internet continues expanding and as we, we develop more and more artificial intelligence applications, we have to really think strongly about ethical questions and we have to set clear norms internationally around what is and is not an okay rights respecting way of using this technology. And if you're being spied upon constantly and someone is using that to make decisions about arresting you or locking you in a camp somewhere, um, you know, not to be not to be too dramatic about it, but that's that's the reality in some places. You have we have to think about how we combat that as a practice, and how do we ingrain an ethical thinking about these technologies so we're not just deploying them in really dangerous ways. Yeah. Well, uh, for me, it, I think the words you know, kind of manipulation about what will people what will people begin to engage in. I'm just thinking here about if I went out and there was a drone. And I was thinking, oh, God, you know, here it is trying to follow what I'm doing today. Would I then, you know, act in a particular way? I'm just thinking about the kind of psychological concepts of when, when yeah. we have performance anxiety. And, and yeah. um, so I'm just thinking about what, what will start to happen to human beings if they feel that this is a thing that happens, you know, um, because it's, it's, it's quite well known, isn't it? If you are in a public space, expect to be uh, monitored by CCTV. Right. And that doesn't feel quite as um, imposing as a drone that might be following you because that yeah. that really feels like stalking and, you know, it's got an insidious nature to it. That's that's how it feels to me. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there's, there's a heap of literature that's quite interesting on how people behave differently, like you just said, in public spaces or private spaces when they're being watched and they know they're being watched. Yeah. Um, and, they, you know, everything ranging from, uh, there was one study that looked at how protesters behave differently when police officers film them versus when they're not filming them during a, pe mm -hmm. during a peaceful protest. A peaceful protest, nothing's going wrong. Um, you're just more conscious of your actions. And I think that's part of the intention in some of these, these places where surveillance is very clearly in your face. Um, it's not, you know, they're not trying to hide that they're watching you. It's very clear that they're watching you with cameras all over the city and that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. I think that is part mm -hmm. of the intention is to build a culture of where you start to regulate your own behavior. And, and I particularly say this with respect to the internet, knowing that you're being monitored 
is a huge incentive for you to self-censor. And if I know the government is watching exactly every little word that comes out of my Twitter feed, I am not going to start tweeting. I'm going to be careful about what I say. I'm not going to tweet anti-regime statements. I'm not going to say things that disrupt the status quo. Um, and for people who do, you can literally find these on Twitter, people in China who have had threads on their Twitter because they got around the censorship wall and they're posting things about the government or about an issue in the country, however local or national. And next thing you know, um, I just saw one of these last week. Next thing you know, the person posts something, oh, I am sorry. I never intended to say these things before. I will never do this again. The state is wonderful kind of thing. And, and it's very uh, yeah. clear. And there have been reports that these people get a knock on their door from the security services or they are reached out to online or someone, their Twitter account is hacked and taken over and shut down. You know, it starts to build this culture of, oh, did you see so-and-so got, got caught? You know, it build, it's like any country where you're heavily spied upon. Yep. It starts to build a culture of self-censorship and self-regulation. And ultimately, yep. that's not a good thing. No, because that's that's the scapegoat, isn't it? In terms of um, we'll make an example of this person, and then the rest. I'm just going back to this is in the art of war, <laughs> which I know yeah. Gary, if he's listening to this, will will absolutely love this. Bit. <laughs> this is this is kind of the you know we'll make an example of this person, and the rest of you will fall in line. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's and example it, setting. Was, it's deterrence. Yeah. yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, it funnily enough, that was done in China, wasn't it? If I think about the uh, the actual story of the yes. beheading of the, the co- <laughs> zero, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, how does uh, do you know? Sorry, I've thrown my own head in by doing that. <laughs> <laughs> for me, yeah, for me, there's something about fear through paranoia, fear through um, well, just uh, regulation through fear. I'm I'm just thinking about so much that would happen, um, and then it becomes kind of the news and I'm just thinking about how people would then become manipulated um, in terms of what people could then be told and how they could be kind of veered towards something. I was reading something the other day and I'm trying to remember exactly what it was Justin so that I can get it correct but I, I, uh, for example flat earthers so this is this is something that I was kind of reading and there's been a Netflix documentary which I've been goaded and goaded and goaded into watching and I kind of put it on in the background and it was one of those things that I just got angry at because I was just like, why, why have they spent the time making this? Um, and it is a bit of a Mickey take out of the Flat Earthers, but I think it might be Tim Urban, um, who I really like Tim Urban's um, kind of writings, although his blogs are really long. Um, he He said something along the lines of, if you have these people who don't know how to critically think or don't know how to risk assess or don't know how to do X, Y, Z, which is what we're able to do if we have access to all of the information, you then become a person who can be easily manipulated. And that then means that you're then kind of a pawn of the government. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just kind of looking at the bigger picture here. So it is one of the arguments that I'm, I'm trying to get into um, teachers, to counsellors and so on. When you're sitting with clients and they bring you information about what's what's happened on the internet or what the latest app is, um, and this is just going to go with a, a debate that we had here um, the other week uh, called the Momo debate, which was about a hoax. Yeah, just went absolutely viral, and yep. I ended up writing a blog about it, saying, you know, the reason you did this is because you went into your fear response. You didn't critically think. You shared without thinking. And because of that, you actually played into the hands of the manipulators. And if, yeah. if adults can't do it and children can't do it, then we might end up with a whole nation of non-critical thinkers, which means easily manipulated. Yeah. 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 Wow. This is actually quite scary. <laughs> isn't it yeah. if, you, if you kind of sit on this side of the fence it is or it could be quite scary yeah and there, and you know and there's sort of two different threads there one i mean of course is not to equate what's happening with that here versus or in the uk versus within china of course which i know you're not doing but the you know the second point kind of being that there's also the difference that there's there's a lack of critical thinking perhaps in one thread but people still have the option of accessing information yeah. Um, and in that sense, that's sort of a, not to say that a lack of critical thinking or automatic sharing online is not bad. I certainly think it's, it's harmful and we need to be more proactive about it. But, um, but you at least have some guardrail where you can still access information and go learn should you desire to. Versus 
in other, you know, for not to use China as the, <laughs> the constant example, but in a country like that where the, the internet is heavily uh, restricted, people might be great critical thinkers and many of them, as I'm sure in every country, are constantly questioning things. Um, but you literally might not be able to access the information that helps you make informed decisions about what your government is doing. Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, you know, it doesn't matter how much someone is, is skeptical or questioning what the, the party is doing, for instance, if they don't have the ability to use a VPN and get around the censorship and read other things or even within their own apps in their country, read dissident things that kind of spur their thinking. And that goes back to the Momo example is the reason there was pushback is because people who could, who were critically thinking about it could access information and see, no, this is not anywhere. This is a hoax. This has come up before. And they were able to publish a thing criticizing it. Um, and even though it's different here, because this is an online hoax versus a government policy, it's, it's kind of the same issue. If you can access the information, that helps you better check what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and this, this is something that I'm just thinking, I think you'd got, and I'm just trying to find it in the article. So there was, um, was it digital deciders or was it the other? You had two, kind of two variable ways of measuring it. And I think, while I'm just talking, it might be a way of explaining to people yeah yeah so we yeah, we so sort of um benchmarks so you've got um blah, 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 uh like the the global and open vision global global and open vision and and yes. how low russia's score was so if we move away from china just for a moment that russia's score was so low that it absolutely looks like they have no <laughs> no 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 intent to open up and have um, freedom of information because that's that's really what we're talking about. Yeah, and that's and again, that's really what it is. Is is the way to think about this? Again, going back to the broader picture, like you said, is that technologies can be used to enhance these authoritarian ways of life, and that's really that's really what this is. I mean, Russia has for years, to the point of broader information access, wanted to restrict what its citizens see. It's controlled the radio the print media, the newspapers, it's controlled television. Every time there's a new media, um, government has taken pretty quick action to regulate how it's used, but then also regulate the content that's sent across it and what citizens can, can read or hear or see. And with the internet, in many ways, that's kind of what the state did is they looked and they said, this is just another way of sharing information. This is another way that people can see things we don't want them to see. This is another way for people to organize online, this, to organize. This is another way to, to go online and access things that are, you know, destabilizing. And what did they do? They did what they had done with every single other media they didn't want people to have unfettered access to. They locked down the net. And that was exactly one of the things we, my colleague Rob Morgus and I found in our, our research. We mapped 193 countries around the world and took a ton of data points and made this spectrum all the way from countries that have a global and open internet to yeah. ones on the other side that are tightly controlled and right over there with China is Russia and how tightly yeah. controlled they are um, and how much of a threat they think the internet is to their state security. Absolutely. And, and yet on the same hand, um, I'm just thinking about learning, learning from other people, which is what we do as humans um, that actually they haven't taken uh, um, a kind of look right the way across the world and gone, well, do you know what? Nothing's really happened in the United Kingdom or, or nothing's happened in the United States. And, you know, maybe maybe if we don't do this, what we might find is X, Y, Z. What, what they've kind of done is just gone, no, nope, we don't like it. Close it down. Huh. Uh, and and all, I, all I can hear is a... Re and I love the fact that we're going back to this word authoritarian because all I can hear is a really angry parent scared angry parent actually yeah i mean you know the line being that authoritarians or you know autocrats are always afraid of their own citizens right that's what they're most afraid of yeah. they're afraid of uprising they're afraid of revolt um in so in right we haven't had any any incident in in the u.s or the uk particularly you know there hasn't been a coup or anything that would scare them but what goes on day to day here is exactly actually what does scare a country like russia and the leadership in the kremlin is that we have people publishing stories that criticize the government 
Um, God knows between, you know, the 2016 election here and Brexit there, there's been enough critical stories. <laughs> um, <laughs> Do you know, you know I thought we were going to stay away from that. <laughs> <laughs> we were not going to go there, but that's the fact of the matter. And that, that alone scares them. I mean, the, yeah. the Arab Spring in particular scared Vladimir Putin in Russia when particularly the way in Libya that um, Gaddafi was overthrown and the way he was executed was quite scary and and in that mm-hmm. sense showed how this internet platform can be a way for people who are already agitated and already want to perhaps revolt to organize and to do it in a way that actually overthrows a government. Um, yeah. And you know, and that's why you can't can't search for certain historical revolts and things like that in China and Russia and other countries because the government doesn't want people to have access to that information. Um, yeah. So you know. It, it is, in fact, that they look at what we have over here, which is a free and open information environment, and that's actually quite scary. Yeah, and 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 if you think about kind of the way statistics are, um, we actually have, you, you could say it'd be like a 50-50 debate on a lot of things, but, um, you know, um, I don't tend to say that with um, certain issues, if I just go back to the flat earthers for a moment, because that's definitely not a 50-50 debate. Right. But what it, does, what it does allow is for people to kind of go off and I'm going to think of the word charlatan here because because there are within the the professions that I've worked in and around. There's a lot of people who do put false information out there, and yeah. that's that's also something that could be. And I'm going to go with that word manipulated again because actually that could be something that 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 is then put out. So it's almost like right, you can't have access to the entire internet, but what we are going to give you access to is information that will skew your beliefs and give you all mm-hmm. these biases and then what you will do is you will believe that this is what our government is doing for you um rather questioning what we might not be doing absolutely and and you know for for a fun google search the uh the 50 cent army they they kind of casually refer to it in china um well in china they don't call it that but people have called it in china and essentially they have this apparatus that people are set up to publish posts online constantly all day about uh, how good the party is and in favor of the state and supporting state policies. And so it's exactly what you just said. It's not, you know, there might be, there might be straight propaganda that's circulated internally um, to skew people's views, but there's also a need to make it seem like most people are in favor of what the government is doing. And so rather than have a legitimate representation of people's beliefs, you get these people who just, post all this stuff that massively skews um what is in fact the belief of the citizens so yeah they're just just because it's controlled and you know people don't want the governments don't want people to see what's on the internet in another country doesn't mean they don't circulate stuff internally and they certainly still do that Mm. um you know russia still does that a lot right with with internal propaganda um yeah i'm i'm drawn to the similarities particularly in, in my line of work between kind of the, the cults and abuse and, you know, how, how that happens and how it comes to be and then how people find themselves within that, within that narrative and how it doesn't change until somebody else comes in and goes, uh, hey, excuse me, uh, this is not how the rest of us do it. Right. I'm just thinking about the, the human rights of people here. It really makes me feel quite sad, actually. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> what's going on, you know, particularly with the, with the Uyghur Muslims and the concentration camps in China, and there, there are really some gross human rights abuses that are going on, yeah. um, and again, it's, this perhaps would have happened anyway without the technology, um, you know, this is not to pretend like China didn't censor things or Russia didn't censor things before the internet mm-hmm. came along, like I just said, but because this technology is out there, we all have phones in our pockets, we all try, you know, we text and whatever constantly. It's just a great way to monitor people. It's a mini surveillance device you carry around with you. Um, well, absolutely. Um, well, just, just to go um, just to go with something that, so I'm, I'm as, as you probably were, very pro-tech, pro-gadget kind of, yeah, I like this, I like right. that. I won't have an Alexa in my house, right? No, me neither. But here's, <laughs> but here's the other thing. I wear an aura ring, which tracks my sleep, uh, heart rate variability. It could, it could well be, and this is just, and I'm not being paranoid. I'm just playing along here. <laughs> um, this could well be tracking 
every kind of emotional state that I'm in during the day, every location that I go to, the kind of people that I talk to, it could have a microphone in it. You know, it, it could be ruled by the state that this little piece of technology I buy thinking is one thing could actually turn out to be another to collect data that could then be used against me. So yeah. there, there is a little bit of my head's just gone, oh my God, what happens if that's really true? <laughs> so, yeah. if, and, and in that case, uh, yeah, I'd probably say something along the lines of those tweets about, yeah, the government's really lovely and uh, don't cut my internet off. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm just thinking there's, there's so much that we do. Um, like, I'm just thinking about kind of your bank, your bank's cards have chip and pins in them, don't they? You take your phone everywhere. There's all the, there's all the um, myths around whether your, your data is being collected now after, after Cambridge Analytica, you know, about whether your microphone's permanently on and things right. like that. But actually, this is, this is exactly what we're talking about. There are ways and means to collect this data alongside giving you i'm just thinking about Rights. Your, yeah yeah, yeah. There's, there's apps you know and and i have a colleague who's doing phenomenal work on this data governance questions right it's exactly that is you know we mm-hmm. we're not gonna we can't put the <laughs> we can't put the genie back in the bottle on this one right i mean we got data coming out on every little behavioral thing we do near or next to a device um mm-hmm. online right and so that's the reality. But as you just said, GDPR is a, you know, GDPR is one example, right? There are ways you can, in fact, have these services, have some data collection where you are actually doing it in a democratic way. It's relatively fair. You're respecting people's rights in some capacities. Um, And so I think that's sort of one of the other takeaways from this is that in addition to paying more attention to human rights online, to not taking our internet access for granted, that kind of thing, we need to think about in countries where we both live right setting a good example for the rest of the world and showing that you can in fact use all these great gadgets like you said while you are having some respect for basic human rights and you know giving you some freedoms yeah and i think i think the the way the way i see this is um and i I kind of agree with a, a few people from the the privacy sector for this that that actually it's about our rights to privacy even whilst there is no privacy if that makes sense yeah right and that and that's right that's kind of a good way of putting it is you know your data on you is out there and so it's just about making sure that there are checks and balances and rules about how it's used and how it's collected and how it's used uh in ways that affect you yeah and, and that we that we really are made aware of how it's going to be used or what it could be used for. And, Precisely. And, you know, and I, I've been I've been um, absolutely arms open welcoming of this GDPR because it's it's helped me so much in terms of trying to explain to my, my profession uh, what this actually means for them as well as their clients. You know, and and by saying, well, actually, you don't own anything of that clients, and this is a way to actually explain it that. You know, even if you take their name or you take a picture or whatever it is that you do, that's right. that person. It belongs to that person, not you. And, right. and we don't have the right to dictate what we do and we don't own. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. However, that's because we are currently within a democracy and we consider what we do as, as having fairness and, uh, you know, equality and privacy laws and right. so on and so forth. Um so, so <laughs> I'm just thinking, how on earth do we end on this one now? Do I kind of go, so what's the solution here, Justin? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's an enormous question. There's an easy solution. Up. Let me give it to you. Get your pen out. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, being co- for the average person, right, being conscious of these things and mm-hmm. not just paying attention or reading the news in other countries about kind of what's going on with censorship or what's going on with AI and drones and spying on people. Um, but also paying attention in your own country and, and, you know, in the UK or in the U S or Canada or Europe yeah. or wherever else, right. If you see AI being deployed in your town or your city, you know, make noise and ask questions of your, your legislators and things like that about how it's being mm-hmm. used and how is it overseen. Um, and you know, that will help build pressure as there has been pressure for GDPR, right to build democratic norms and democratic rules around these technologies because without strong pressure from citizens and leadership from policymakers, um, you know, many of these companies are not going to make these ethical decisions themselves. So Mm -hmm. up to us. 
I, absolutely. And just to give an example of that, one one evening, so this is about three, four years ago, I was coming back from um, work quite late one evening. And the particular route I take, uh, there was somebody up a lamppost putting a camera. And it seemed to be um, uh, on, on a lamppost. So it was using solar energy uh, above it. And I thought, well, what, what the heck's that doing there? oh it must be one of those traffic monitoring cameras you know they must be seeing how many cars come past um it had been there for like six months so i then start i then started to come home different ways so that it wasn't catching me doing the same route all the time whilst i then tried to find out who'd put it there and what for yeah i i just looked and thought why why is that there yeah Uh, apparently it is a traffic monitoring uh, camera um, extra routes in or put diversions in around this particular area because it's it wasn't far from um, I think it was like a golf course or a motorway or something like that but there was a reason why they wanted to do it gotcha. but I yeah. actually I actually changed my behavior because I spotted this camera and I thought yeah you're not catching me at 10 to 5 every night or 10 to 7 or <laughs> 6 in the morning going the same way yeah uh, kind of goes to show that yes my behavior was manipulated by noticing the fact that something was there precisely Right. And I wonder how many people didn't. I wonder how many people didn't notice it. Or still don't notice it, actually. Or still don't, yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. See, talking to Rachel, we were talking about how COD has had a kind of um, unintended side effect of building up the peripheral vision of players um, and how, how we're learning that that's just been, just been one of the byproducts of it. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, this is possibly because, um, again maybe because I'm a, a, an ex-squaddy, there's something about, I notice changes in my environment and there's something about this camera, it's only because I saw them putting it up, but I have yeah. noticed there's a few more around my city. Yeah. And, and and they just appear, you know, no, no notices that it's going to no go. No notice. <laughs> and that, that worries me when things like that go up because I'm like, okay, what are they collecting now and what for? Yeah, and those are exactly the kind of questions that we need to be asking is, you know, mm. making sure, like you said, there are basic rules and procedures and laws around how this stuff is being used and where is that data going. And if you do some, you know, if, if somebody speeds on camera, how is that going to be used against them? Uh, um, yeah, well, in I don't know if you have it, if you have it over where you are. I think you do in the US that if you're in a bus lane and you're not supposed to be, they take a photograph of you in your car to send it to you to say, we saw you, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, um, there's a game in, um, a psychological game called Niggy Sob in transaction analysis. And it stands for now I've got you son of a bitch. <laughs> so, so on that note, I think what I'm going to advise all my listeners to do, um, is probably start paying attention to your surroundings and asking questions. That might just be a starter for ten. That might just be the start. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything else you wanted to kind of get into today's episode, Justin? No, I think I think we covered a good spectrum. I think, yeah, yeah. We've we've terrified people um, this <laughs> sufficiently. <podcast>. Yep. <laughs> it's not enough. You can watch the Black Mirror episode. <laughs> I'm just going to say this podcast goes from saying, "Hey, don't believe all you read in the the uh, media because games are really good, social media is really good," and then I come in with episodes like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you've got to have a balanced view. It's so, all grey, right? It's yeah, black and white. Absolutely. Not just black Absol- and white. <laughs> absolutely. Right. Okay. I think. Um, Again, before my internet drops out, because I've been on for nearly an hour now, and that seems to be about its limit usually. Um, I'm going to thank you once again for coming on. And, uh, uh, yeah, I think I'll end up having you back as well, Justin, because um, do you do you do conversations at all with, um, is it David Ryan Polgar? He's an no. ethical. He, isn't he towards the ethical framework? Okay. I think who else? Who else does? Um, so Tristan Harris, he's another um, ethical. Yeah, yeah, yep. yep. There is there is a bit of a movement to be kind of having conversations around this. It's getting going. We're getting going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So obviously they're they're two biggies that um, I will I will try and track down and probably have a conversation right. with. Um, but I think that there's something about having these conversations with more people and you know at the moment you're one of the only people I know that I can talk to about these issues that is doing the research around it that's available to have have these conversations 
Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been been another great talk. Yeah. Thank you. This podcast was edited by Rory Kavanagh, an audio enthusiast and music producer.